Thank you, Rich. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you head to the back, your teacher will meet you. It's just an age-appropriate setting to, to hear about uh, the Bible for our children. So let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we, um, we gather this morning and we really need you. Um, when we come to study your word, it's easy to do it mechanically, to do it um, technically, but uh, Lord, to understand, to really get what it is that you're saying is we need to grasp it spiritually. We need your spirit to open our hearts and minds and apply it. And Lord, I confess to you my struggle this week with trying to get this uh, sermon together. And so I confess to you my great need right now for you to speak to us. Lord, would you make this clear to all of us and may we hear and understand what it is that you're telling us this morning from your word. Holy Spirit, be with us and guide us. Open your, your, uh, your scriptures to us. And Father, I want to pray for a previous pastor of this church, Bob Burris, as he's preparing to go to Uganda to teach pastors there how to interpret scripture. Lord, I pray that he would struggle with that same question of how do we understand God's word? And uh, Lord, that he would be able to teach the pastors in Uganda um, the methods that we've learned, the methods that he's picked up, the, the things that the church has practiced over the years to understand your word. And would you bless his trip, bless his time in Uganda. And I pray that the pastors he meets with would be um, really encouraged by Bob's presence and his, his love for your word. And again, Lord, would you be with us now as we open? And I pray that you would um, help us to see and to believe in Jesus Christ through what you have to say, to trust him more. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, my basic understanding of the book of Acts, what the book of Acts is about, just wanted to rehash this, is it is about disciples making disciples. And the reason I say that is because in Luke's gospel, Luke begins by talking to a man named Theophilus, and he says, I want you to be sure of the things you've been taught. And when we went through Luke, I said, that's what it means to be a disciple, is to be taught. Disciples are learners. They have a master who teaches them, and they are kind of the apprentice. They learn from them. So the gospel of Luke was about being a disciple. Well, the way Acts starts is he says to Theophilus again, I want you to understand the things that Jesus continued to do. The name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles, but the introduction says the things Jesus continued to do. So the way I kind of interpret that is, is Jesus is doing these things through his disciples, the disciples that he's made. So these are disciples now going out and making disciples. And so you remember last week, or last couple of weeks, we looked at Stephen. Stephen was the first disciple who didn't know Jesus. He, he was a disciple made by the disciples. And you remember what we said when we looked at him, as I said, so did they succeed in making a disciple? Stephen was just a, a wonderful guy. He was on fire for the Lord. He was preaching. He was teaching. And he died in glory. And we said, yeah, there's an example of a, a disciple who is, has succeeded. This is somebody who they've really made into a disciple. Well, this week in chapter 8, well, the first half of chapter 8, we're going to see a discipleship failure, unfortunately. But that's actually okay. We, it's kind of a sobering thing, but we need to see this and we need to understand it. And by the way, that's not the end. Next week we get to see a success. The Ethiopian eunuch, we'll meet him and that'll be a success. But this week, unfortunately, we have to look at a discipleship failure. And, and we're going to see what happens there. So the section that we're looking at this morning kind of breaks out like this. Courage in the face of persecution. Disciples of Jesus Christ will face persecution. Here's an example of courage in the face of that. Then we'll meet this man named Simon. 
Simon the Great. Sound like a magician? Simon the Magnificent, Simon the Great. And then finally, we'll see this failed disciple, the, the, how discipleship can fail. So let's take a look here. So the, the first part of this is kind of an introduction, uh, a wrapping up of what happened with Stephen, an introduction that brings us into the next kind of phase of the book of Acts. Um, you remember back in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you, when you receive power from the Holy Spirit, or when the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Chapters 1 through 7 have almost exclusively been focused in Jerusalem. Uh, and even more so, that the beam tightens even, even tighter. It's been largely at the temple. That's been the heart and the center of this. And so that is their witness in Judea. And they, they continued to work there. They worked there for quite a while. In, in um, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, we hear about people from the towns around Jerusalem coming in. So Jerusalem is the center. People from outside are beginning to come in. Um, Acts chapter 6, we heard about the struggle now between those Jews who became believers in Jesus Christ who spoke Hebrew and those Jews who became believers in Jesus Christ who spoke Greek. So we kind of get this now international flavor to the church. It's becoming more than just this homogenous little group. It's beginning to spread. Well, chapter 8 is now the launch into the next phase. And so what we hear is um, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. That statement is kind of the banner that introduces the, the next section, the next few uh, verses. This is what the persecution that arose looked like. What did, it, what did it look like? What happened in this persecution? Um, first of all, they were scattered. So the church used to be centrally located in Jerusalem. They met in people's homes. They would gather together. They would go to the temple together. But now they're scattered because of this persecution. So persecution, first of all, drove them out. And they were scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Where did we just hear that? Didn't Jesus just say, you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem? And now Judea and Samaria, that's exactly what's happening. So just as Jesus told them, this is the way the gospel is going to spread, so it's spreading. The church is now moving out. So they, they, they all head out except the apostles. The apostles remain in Jerusalem. And you would think, well, maybe they're too afraid to go elsewhere. The apostles stayed where the heat was. The apostles stayed where the persecution was. The apostles didn't flee. That's not saying anything negative about the Christians who did flee. It's simply saying the apostles felt that their calling was still at this point in Jerusalem, and so they stayed even, even in the face of persecution. So that's the first thing that persecution does is it drives them out. The second thing, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So Stephen has been executed. That's part of the persecution of the church is Stephen got killed. And when Stephen was executed... Devout men took him and buried him, and they didn't just drop him in a grave and wandered away. They lamented. This was tragic news that their good friend, their, their, their wonderful friend Stephen, has now been executed. And here's what the persecution also looks like. Saul was ravaging the church. That word ravaging is translated a couple of different ways. Basically, what the, the, I think the King James, if I remember right, says he was destroying the church. The word that we translate ravaging is, I think ravaging is a little bit weak on what was actually happening. He was destroying the church. What Saul was doing is he was so mad about what Stephen had said in the last chapter that he's going around and he's arresting anybody who speaks like that. 
If you think like, Saul, like uh, Stephen did, I'm coming after you. And what it says is, he ravaged the church, entering house after house. There was no right of privacy. There was no private ownership. Saul got authorization, most likely from the temple, from the high priest, to go and find people and arrest them and drag them out of their homes and put them in jail for simply believing that Jesus was who he said he was. This is what it means to be persecuted. This is what it means that he would ravage the church. He committed them to prison. You go to jail if you say this. That's what was happening in the church. So this is kind of the anvil, the strike that, that comes that breaks the church up and begins to force her out. So let's take a real quick look at where they went. So can you put the next slide up? Um, it, if you're already familiar with this, it's just kind of a refresher, but sometimes I think it's helpful to get another view. So here's the Mediterranean Sea. This is Israel, modern-day Israel. Um, the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan runs down to the Dead Sea. This portion down here is called Judea. This middle portion is called Samaria. So that's, that's the map. So what's happening here is, is Philip is going to go from Jerusalem to Samaria, and in Samaria there's a city called Samaria. Kind of like New York, New York, right? Only Samaria, Samaria. And then after he's done in Samaria, he'll wind up down here in Gaza. So just to get our, our, our um, bearings on this, this is where he's traveling. One of the things to remember about Samaria is that it's not Judea. The Samaritans were seen as other, hetero is the word. They were not Jews, they weren't quite Gentiles, but they weren't with us. So that's why the, the Jews would often travel around Samaria. Even though it would take longer to get back up to Galilee to get there, they would go around Samaria because they didn't want to associate with those dirty Samaritans. Why do they feel like that against Samaritans? What did, they, what did the Samaritans ever done? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament, you look at the history of Samaria. When the kingdom divided, it divided into Judea in the south and Samaria in the north. Samaria in the north immediately adopted other gods, other practices, and worshipped false gods almost their entire history. It was just a horrible history. When God sent in the Babylonians to come down, the Assyrians rather, to come in and take them away, scrape them off and take them into captivity, what the Assyrians did was left a few Jews there to tend the ground because when you take a country captive, you want stuff. So if you take all the people out, you don't get the stuff. So they left people there to generate more stuff so that it could be funneled off to, Samaria, uh, to Assyria. But the other thing they did was they took people from other areas and settled them in there. So what Samaria turned into was a mixed breed. There were Jews and non-Jews living together, intermarrying. There was Jewish history intertwined with pagan religions. And so it became this kind of other thing. It's not wholly un-Jewish, but it's not really Jewish, if you know what I mean. So that's the Samaria. That's where Philip winds up going to these others. And so he goes there and he begins to preach. So um, the persecution was what God used to get them to talk to the other people. And I think it's kind of neat that he starts with Samaria because the Samaritans are not exactly Gentiles, but that's where the church is heading because what was the, the zones that Jesus talked about? Judea, okay, that's familiar. They're Jews. We're, we're kind of on the same page. Samaria, they're kind of other. Ends of the earth are all the Gentiles. So what Jesus has been doing is preparing them, walking the church through these issues. And that's what we're going to see today is they're going to begin to engage the Samaritans who are not quite exactly the same. So that's, that's what Jesus has done through this persecution. Now let's be real for a second. This is persecution. 
It's easy for us to sit here in our comfortable seats and look at it and go, oh, that's persecution. But think about it for a minute. Men buried Stephen and wailed. They wept bitterly because Stephen was killed. He was stoned to death, a horrible death. The church members, their houses were broken into and they were dragged off and thrown into jail and not a jail like we have here. This would have been a hole in the ground where if nobody brings you food, you die. So this persecution was not a comfortable little thing. People fled. They left their homes. They left Jerusalem, which was familiar and known, and they became refugees in another area that if they were in Samaria, that was not familiar. That was like going to the enemy almost. Or if they headed to the rest of Judea, they would have to rely on the kindness of other people to have some place to stay. This was not just a minor inconvenience for them. This was a disruption of their entire lives. That's why it's notable that the the apostles stayed where it was dangerous. This persecution was a bad thing. So how on earth do you face that kind of persecution and not just go, well, I don't believe in Jesus anymore? What would cause somebody to say, it's worth it knowing that I could be thrown in jail? It's worth it knowing that I will be displaced and could be in some place that's foreign to me. What makes a person do that, especially this early in the church? What could possibly motivate that? Well, given the context, and and this is the context in which um, Luke is writing, I think what he said last chapter comes to play. As Stephen is dying, as they're throwing rocks and crushing bones and, and giving him concussions with these rocks, Stephen looks up and sees into heaven. And he saw Jesus standing at the glory of God, standing at the right hand. And it was that vision that he could look up and see that and say to God, don't hold this sin against them. Because Jesus was the judge. Jesus would be the one who would look on these people and say guilty or innocent. And so Stephen pleads for their innocence, pleads for them to be forgiven. That kind of a vision, knowing, a, knowing for a fact that Jesus is actually, not, not figuratively, not in a painting, but physically standing in heaven, having a vision of him standing at the right hand of God, this position of authority, of power, as a judge, as a ruler, and to have them look down on Stephen as he's dying and say, I'm going to open heaven, Stephen, so that you can see, gives them hope. He didn't have to reveal that to Stephen. Stephen would be there in a few minutes. But he opened the heavens so that Stephen could have this vision. And not only that, but he allowed Stephen to announce, behold, I see Jesus in heaven. He gave him that opportunity to say that because the church needed to know persecution is about to come. People are going to oppose you. They are going to be violent against you. But first of all, I see. I'm standing in heaven and I'm watching. I know what's going on. Second of all, I'm in heaven and I will receive you. And third, I will judge. And I will judge fairly and appropriately. That's how the church in this first section here could face this persecution and keep on believing in Jesus, is they knew for a fact he he had ascended into heaven, he was standing there beside God the Father. He had the authority, he had the power. That's what enabled them, is to believe that to be true, to know that that was what was going to happen. And so that's the vision that gives them the power to go on to what comes next. So the next section is we meet this man, Simon. There was a man named Simon who had previously tragic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Um, 
Simon historically has been called Simon Magnus. Um, it, Magnus was not his last name. Magnus was his title. Magnus is Greek for great. And if you notice in verses 9, 10, and, uh, 9 and 10, great is mentioned three times. It comes up quite a bit. Luke's kind of making a point for us. He's hitting this drum, great, great, great. So who's Simon? Simon Magnus was a magician in Samaria. And according to Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr was a guy who lived from about 100 to about 165 AD. So second century um, person. Uh, Justin Martyr, by the way, was from Samaria. That's where he was born and raised. Uh, he became a Christian and he told us that there was a man named Simon of Gitta who had betrothed all of Samaria. So the thought is that's probably the same guy, the same Simon. And the reason that Simon had enthralled all of Samaria, he said, was um, in the time of Claudius Caesar, through the arts of demons who worked in him, he did mighty works of magic. So the man who lived in Samaria, just after this time period, said that there was a guy named Simon who did magic and was really popular. That pretty much everybody followed him. So we're pretty sure that's this Simon. And, and the he takes the title great because he has got this wonderful power. He can do all of these magic acts. Uh, he can do these wonderful things. So did he really do magic? Now, in our post-enlightenment scientific mindset, we think, well, no, he just did, you know, like sleight of hands, right? He, he learned some tricks to confuse people. And people back then were so unenlightened that it was so easy to, to befuddle them and confuse them. Well, I think there was probably a degree of chicanery. Is that a good word? $9 seminary educated word, chicanery? There's enough fooling around where he could manipulate things and do sleight of hand and get people amazed just by being that, doing those kind of things. And that would, that would wow people. Um, it might be that he had come across some, under, some uh, things that he could do that would amaze people, and he didn't understand why they worked. Like if he found um, uh, baking soda and put it in vinegar and it, and it bubbled. He wouldn't know why that worked. It was pre-scientific, but he would do it and it would just amaze people. Or he maybe found some kind of metals that would react together. So he could do that, but not understand it. That, that comes from the idea that Arthur C. Clarke once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So even Simon could be using some significantly advanced technology and not understand it not understand the intricacy of it, but it would be perceived as magic. So that's a possibility. Um, it's also possible that what Justin Martyr, who lived much closer to the time than I do, was absolutely right. It was the power of demons working in this man. That because his magic would keep everybody distracted and, and confused and focused on him, Simon is the power of God. Then, then demons might be quite happy to come in every once in a while and do a little bit of show. You know, make something really incredible happen. Whisper in his ear something that he shouldn't know. So it, it could be all of these things. It doesn't have to necessarily be that it was all fakery. Um, part of it probably was. Part of it was probably technology. And part of it might have been magic, actual black, dark magic. So this is the man. And, and because he does these things, people are enthralled of him. But listen to what he's like. So first of all, he was popular. Um, Everybody was amazed all throughout Samaria, saying that he was somebody great. He was amazing. And then people paid attention to him from the greatest to the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. 
And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. And when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed after seeing, being baptized and continued with Philip's, Philip, seeing the signs and great miracles that were performed, he was amazed. So what you get is Simon was popular, he was amazing, he was a magician, he believed and was baptized, and he was amazed. So that's who Simon is. So this, this section just kind of introduces this man, puts him up there for us. He's a person of great celebrity, of great power, probably a lot of wealth because people would pay him for this kind of stuff. But he heard what Philip was saying. He heard the message about the kingdom of God and who Jesus Christ was. And all of, all of the area that Philip was preaching and believed, Simon himself said, I believe too. He believed the message as well. So here's what happens when somebody becomes a believer, when they trust in Jesus Christ, when they say, I believe the message that Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. What's the next step? Is they become disciples. They follow this Jesus. They go, if that's true about him, then I'm going to obey what he says. I'm going to follow his way because I know what waits for me. I want to be on his side. So the next step should be a disciple. So what happens with Simon? Well, first, starting in 14, um, when the apostles at Jerusalem, remember they stayed behind, heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So word comes back to the apostles that these Samaritans are believing. They're putting their hope in Jesus Christ. They sent Peter and John. So two of the apostles go into Samaria, and they came down and they prayed for that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they were only baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Pause. I got to be honest here. This is really a problem for my theology. This really gives my theology a little bit of uh, um, defibrillation issues. Um, so one thing you could do is you could try to explain it away because it doesn't agree with my theology. I'm not going to do that. Let's, let's take a look at what it says. He says, first of all, that the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. So my theology, the way I understand this to work, is the Holy Spirit grants repentance. We see that in Acts 11, verse 18, and 2 Timothy 2, 15, that God grants repentance, so that's the Holy Spirit grants repentance. And he grants faith. Ephesians 2, 8 says that. And it's by God, God causes us to be born again. In other words, to get a renewed heart. That's 1 Peter 1, 3. So that, that's where I, my theology comes from. So what on earth am I supposed to do when it says the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them yet? They believed, but the, they, they hadn't received the Spirit. That's not possible according to my understanding. So here's how we might approach this. Um, it says that the Spirit was given, though. They did eventually receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was given through the laying on of hands. Right? The apostles come down and they go, you haven't received the Spirit. Let's put our hands on you and we'll give you the Holy Spirit. There you go. So now, remember the question I keep asking of Acts. Is that normative or is that descriptive? Is this establishing the pattern that the church must follow or is it simply saying what happened at that time? So laying out of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. Normative or descriptive? Descriptive. And the reason I say that is because on Pentecost, remember in, in Acts chapter 2, on Pentecost, did they have to lay hands on all 4,000 people that came to know him? Nope. They believed and they were baptized and that was that. Acts chapter 4, when that number grew to 5,000, did they 
Lay hands on them too? Nope. When we go through the rest of Acts, do they constantly have to lay hands on people? They'll do it again. But do they have to do it every single time? No. So then the question I want to ask is, why this time? Why in this way? Why at this place did the Holy Spirit not? Why did he not fall on these people? Why did he decide not to arrive on these people in the same way? Well, I think there's a, a couple of reasons. First of all, remember we talked about these miracles that are done. And why don't we see miracles? How come we don't have people uh, speaking in tongues and healings and all that stuff going on here? And I said, where you see that the most, especially as we go through Acts, is at the cutting edge, where the gospel is entering a new area. God will often attend it with miracles so that people will go, this is for real. This is not just words people are saying. This is something unique and, and something we need to stop and listen to. And most of the book of Acts is cutting edge, so you see it all the time in Acts. But you don't see it in the rest of the epistles. So this is a similar kind of thing. This might be along those same lines of, this is a cutting edge area. This is something new. By the way, it's Samaria, who the Jews at that point at this, you know, in history are going, eh, maybe not. So the Holy Spirit didn't fall on them in order to draw the apostles into Samaria and say, you guys come and take care of this. So they, the, the apostles now have to go into Samaria and assess the situation and go, well, did you believe this? Yes, we do. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Yes. Jesus the Jew is, a, is the Messiah? Yes. Jesus who's from Galilee, not Samaria, is the, the Messiah? Yes, we believe all of that. So I think it had to do with getting the apostles to, to get this bigger picture that God had in mind for them. Also, it is giving the Samaritans the idea that these apostles have authority. These apostles have the authority to lay hands on people and have the Holy Spirit come upon them. Why on earth is that at this time in redemptive history? Why would he do that? Do they have a Bible? Do they have a New Testament at this point? All they have is the Old Testament scriptures. What is the authority in the, in the church at this point? The apostles. The apostles are the ones who were, who were um, understudies for Jesus. They walked with him for three years. He taught them. He opened their minds to understand. And so when it comes to questions about who is this Jesus, where do you go? You go to Peter. You go to James. You go to John. They were right there with him. So the Samaritans also need to see these guys have this kind of authority. They are the authority structure for the church right now. And so when they come and they lay their hands on you, then you receive the Holy Spirit. You need to see and hear and trust these men. Now, if we project forward eventually, what did they do eventually? They eventually started writing things down. They started writing letters to other people. And that's what we get the New Testament from. And then they died. That's what they did, is they eventually died. So can we then appeal to the apostles? Can we call Peter and have him come down here and explain it to us right now? No, he's dead. He's in heaven. What we have is what he wrote down. And so we can look at 1 Peter and 2 Peter and go, Peter, what about? And we get that authority structure. At this point in history, they didn't have that. So they had to appeal directly to the people. So the reason that the Holy Spirit didn't fall on them is so that the apostles would be known as the authority structure in the church at that point. Does that make sense? I think that's the best explanation. So now let's back up. What about this idea that the Holy Spirit grants repentance, faith, and causes us to be born again? but he hadn't fallen on them. It could be that the Holy Spirit came to them, granted them repentance, let them see their sins, gave them faith, let them trust in Jesus Christ, caused them to be born again, but did not seal them in the same way. 
that he would come upon everybody else. So there is what he does, but then there's his residence in them to empower them for ministry. So whatever he did, when he, they laid hands on him, somehow they knew it was different. The Holy Spirit had come. So the Spirit could grant faith and repentance, as he did in the Old Testament with Old Testament believers, but not seal them in the same way. And so that's what my guess is, is it doesn't really define, or it doesn't really mess up my theology as bad as I thought it did. So I'm safe. Whew. I was worried for a minute there. So what happens is the spirit, Simon watches the apostles put their hands on these people and he sees them changed. However that looked, maybe they spoke in tongues. I don't know what they did, but he looked and he said, something objectively happened to these people. And so Simon looks at it and says, I want that power. That's, I want that ability. I want to know how to do that. And so it says that he offered them money and he said, give me this power also that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Does that seem like an unreasonable request? I think it would be really great if God gave me that power. I'd just walk down Lancaster Boulevard with my hands out, giving everybody the Holy Spirit I bumped into. That would be awesome. That's, that's not a bad request, necessarily. But Peter, who was actually there at the time, he interprets that for us. He, the problem is, Simon said, here, I'll give you some money and you give me that ability. He thought he was buying a trick. He thought he was buying some skill. He thought he was buying a little bit of magic that he could add to his show. And so Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Is it Peter's gift to give? Peter can't explain to, to um, Simon, here's what you got to do. If you do these things, if you wave your hands this way and say these words, then you get it. It's God's gift. God had given it to his apostles. God would take it away from his apostles if he wanted to. It was God's gift. And what is going on here is Simon wants to buy it with money. I can give you some cash and I can get that power. He says, you neither have part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent um, would forgive the intent of your heart. For he see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So here's the problem. He says, you have no part or lot in this matter. But wait a minute. Simon believed and was baptized. We would receive him into church membership. He believed. When did you believe? Simon, tell me what happened. This guy Philip showed up. He was doing these wonderful signs. He told us about Jesus. I put my trust in Jesus. Oh, great. Were you ever baptized? Yeah, man, he baptized me right after that. Cool. You can be a church member. But Peter looks at him and says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. You have no interest in everything that's going on. Peter said that to him. So what is going on with Simon? Did he believe? Now, the Calvinist in me wants to say, well, no, not really. Because if you really believed. But you have to kind of step back and go, yeah, but it says he believed. The Bible itself says Simon believed. So what does that mean? Not only that Simon believed, but he was baptized also. So what's going on there? Well, the Samaritans didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They weren't sealed in the Holy Spirit right away, were they? Simon wasn't ever. Not at all. So what happened with Simon is he heard the message. He said, that sounds good to me. 
I'll accept that. What do I got to do? And then he's baptized. But he never got to the point where his heart was changed. He never got to the point where he said, I, not only do I agree with that, I love that. Not only do I think that's, that's true, I, I think that's beautiful. One of the problems with discipleship is we can think if we just fill people's heads with facts, we have made disciples. If you believe these doctrines and you can recite them and even defend them, then you are a disciple. Congratulations. The problem that we see here is with Simon is it never got down into his heart. The truth of who Jesus Christ was, the glory of what Jesus Christ has done, the resurrection, the fact that Jesus is standing in heaven never became beautiful to Simon. He looked at it and he said, this sounds good. I like this story. I want to add it to what I already have. How can I take that and add it into my bag of tricks? You see, that that's the problem here is he, he, he tasted of it. He was involved with it. He was standing around with it when it was happening. He was amazed by it, but he never engaged it. And so that's where I think when the author of Hebrews is talking about people falling away, I think this is what he's getting at. In Hebrews 6, he says, For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, but have taste, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, then fall away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to, content, to contempt. So what I think the author of Hebrews is saying is you get somebody like Simon. Simon is there. He's right in the mix. He's, everything's going on. He tastes it. He can see what the power is. He can see these people's lives are changed. There's something unique about this person now. I got a taste of that, but I never grasp it as my own. And so why is it that he would say, well, you would have to crucify Christ once again? Because the problem with Simon and the problem with the people that are talking about in Hebrews 6 is, if that wasn't good enough, what will be? If you've got a taste of the powers to come and that wasn't good enough, what will be? If Jesus Christ in his glory is presented to you in truth and you go, hmm, what would make you, what would ever bring you to the point where your heart would change? That's why it's impossible to restore them to repentance. They've heard. There's no more to be told. I have nothing else to tell you. We're going to have to crucify Jesus all over again for you at this rate. It's impossible to restore you to repentance because you got that close. You tasted it, and now you're immune to it. You got an inoculation, and it doesn't phase you. I think that's where he's going with it. This also sounds kind of like, remember the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Do you remember when we talked about that in Luke? That is the unforgivable sin, is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can be forgiven of that. You can come to believe in the Holy Spirit. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was in the context we saw in Luke is the Pharisees watched Jesus do these miracles. They saw him raise people from the dead, heal the sick, preach the good news. They looked at him and went, they didn't say that never happened. They didn't say it's trickery. They went, that's from Satan. That's, the, that's to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to not just not believe, but to see, to believe, and to attribute it to something else. And so Simon is kind of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because he's looking at this and he goes, I want that power. The Holy Spirit is a power. The Holy Spirit is something that you can achieve, that you can get, 
something that you can manipulate, a power that I can have in my hands. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He's not a power. So to look at, for Simon to look at these miracles and assess them as something that he can manipulate sounds to me like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's dangerously close anyway. That's pretty bad. So when, when they say you have neither lot nor part in this matter, what Peter is announcing to him is you're damned to hell. Your only means of salvation have been cut off from you because you just think that Jesus is one more cool trick, that the Holy Spirit is something you can manipulate. That's, that's a terrifying place to be in. He says, therefore, repent of this wickedness. Therefore, repent of this wickedness. He doesn't tell Simon, dude, you are totally lost. It's over for you, bud. What he tells them is, this is the dire situation you're in. You have one choice. You have to repent of this wickedness. Turn your heart. Don't think of God as a power you can manipulate. Repent. So Peter still has hope for Simon. He's still, still hoping that he can come out. But he announces that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. What on earth does that mean? I couldn't wait to get to that because I read that and I'm going, I don't know what that means. What is he talking about? The bond of iniquity. Iniquity is sin. Sin is a bond. If you get caught up in sin, it tends to hold on to you. You kind of like it. It becomes the new norm for you. So when sin gets a hold of you, when it gets a foot in you, you don't want to give it up. I remember before I became a Christian, I said, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to stop having fun. Because the drinking and the carousing and all that stuff was, quote unquote, fun. That's the bonds of iniquity. If, if you become a believer, you're going to lose all of this wonderful stuff that you so enjoy. And then after I became a believer, I look back and I go, you know, I was constantly chasing that joy. I was constantly going, did I miss the good party? Did I miss hanging out with the right person? I didn't go to the right bar that night. I was constantly looking for the fun and never realized I never quite found it. The bond of iniquity will lie to you and say, this is where it's at, baby. This is where you're at. That's what's going on with Simon. Simon is stuck in his sin. He loves the power. He loves the fame. He loves the money. He's stuck in the bonds of iniquity. If he gives up, any of that, he loses everything as far as he's known, as far as he can tell. What on earth is the gall of bitterness? It sounds like a location on a map. Here's the Bay of Biscayne and there's the gall of bitterness. That's what it sounds like to me. Um, other translations handle it a little differently. The NIV says full of bitterness. Full of bitterness. The New English translation says bitterly envious. That's pretty good. And the, the uh, Christian Standard Bible says, poisoned by bitterness. Notice all of them leave out the word gall. What's gall? Gall is the bile that's produced by your liver. It's a yellowish, brownish kind of substance. goes into your gallbladder, and as you digest food, it's secreted into your intestines to help you um, uh, digest food. In animals, and we eat animals, if you get gall from the, the gallbladder or the liver, it's extraordinarily bitter. It's extremely bitter. So when he says the gall of bitterness, he's saying the bitterness of bitterness, the most bitter you can be. It's really bad. So that's what he's saying. Is he's, what he's saying is you're in the gall of bitterness. In other words, basically you're soaking in bitterness now because I've threatened to take away all of those things that you put your hope in. Jesus is greater than all of those things, and that makes you bitter because now you're going to lose control. You wanted to control the Holy Spirit. You wanted to control your life. And what I'm announcing to you, Simon, is you need to give all of those things up. 
You need to liberate yourself from this gall of bitterness. You need to let it go. And the problem is Simon has no intention of surrendering anything for Jesus. What he wants to do is add him to his, his already great things. And here's the problem. Out of all of our loves, everything that we love, the most difficult one to get into order is the love of self. That is the most difficult love to get aligned. Uh, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine talks about disordered loves. And I think the most difficult disordered love to get a grip on is love of self. Simon has people walking around and literally looking at him and saying, you are great. He has people come up to him and say, you are, you are the great power of God. They have, he has people coming to him and saying, here's money, do a trick for me. He has everything he wants. He is, his, his ego is secure and it's disordered because it is securely placed above God. So what Augustine is saying is to, to reorder that love, to get the love of yourself in the right order, it's the hardest one to approach. What did Jesus say were the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love everybody but yourself. No, love your neighbor as yourself. Self-love fits in there, but it must be ordered. And for Simon, it's not ordered. So this is why the discipleship in this case fails is I can only do so much. I can only take you so far. I can preach the good news to you. I can baptize you. I can every Sunday admonish you, please find Jesus lovely. Please trust in all his great promises to you. I can only take you so far. But if your heart never goes from, gee, I really love my position. I love my power. I love my money. I love my family. I love all of these things too. I would give them all up in a heartbeat to gain more of Christ discipleship will fail. It just will. To be a disciple is to say, I desire that more than anything else. And to, to not give it all away, but to be willing to give it all away. To say, I'm not holding on to that so much. I don't want God manipulated and put into my bag of tricks. I just want God. And I'll get rid of the bag of tricks. That's what it means to be a disciple. So to get self-love in the right order is extraordinarily different, difficult because it's so frightening. It is really scary to say, all of these things that I believe about myself could be wrong. And I'm going to just trust that Jesus will tell me the right things about myself. It, it's a difficult position to be in. And so the question then comes up, did, was Simon saved? Was Simon, uh, did Simon actually become a believer? Because what he tells Peter is not, oh, you're full of beans. He looks at him, he says, pray for me that none of this will happen. So, and then period, that's it. Boom, we are done with Simon. That's the last thing that's said about him. Can we definitively say, just from the text we're looking at, Simon Magnus is in hell right now? Nope, no idea. And Luke did it on purpose. <laughs> I am convinced he did it on purpose. Because when Luke wrote this, it was 30 years after the events. So he could have said, oh, by the way, what happened to Simon Magnus was, but he didn't. He drops it right there and he presses on. What he wants us to leave us with is this ringing in our ears that says discipleship can fail. It could fail and you don't want to be there. Because what it leaves you in is in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. Jesus came to set you free from those things. 
So he reminds us to not go there. So then Simon says, pray for me. And that's it. We don't know any more about, about Simon after that. But we do know what happened with the rest of them. What happens next is they testified and spoke the word of the Lord. Who's they? Well, in immediate context, I would say they would probably be Peter and, and uh, James who came down. Or Peter and John. Was it John? Peter and the other apostle who came down. That was probably them. They, they heard Peter or Philip had gone around preaching and then they came in and they said, yeah, here's what's going on. And they preached. I think as beautiful as they didn't just come fix the problem and go home. They came and they continued to preach and spoke the word of the Lord. And then they returned to Jerusalem, but they didn't just get on the express bullet train right down to Jerusalem. Rather, they preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The gospel is going out first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria. It's, it's beginning to happen because Jesus is doing these things. And so he's dragging them out. He's pulling them out across these odd places that they don't think they should be. Jesus is taking them right there. And what they're doing is they're just saying, preach the word. That's what we're here for. So the message for us, I think, in this is, is we get this warning. And, and like I said, the, the, I, I just picture that for you who remember typewriters. You know what typewriters are? For the younger folks, it's this thing that had these arms that swung up and smacked a page. I just I see this, this hammer swinging up and hitting a page with a full stop, a big period. And, and we're, we're left there. Luke just ends with Simon. And, and it's supposed to be ringing in our ears and, and troubling us. It should bother you. If you're not a disciple, it should trouble you. If you are a disciple, you have to be like sobered up and go, wait a minute, what's going on here? But he doesn't leave us there. Luke is going to take us next. Philip, one more time, is in the spotlight, and he's going to meet another very rich, powerful person. And this time, discipleship's going to succeed. They're going to hear and believe and be baptized, and it, this one ends in good news. So he doesn't leave us on a down note. I hate to end on that preaching, but you know, I don't think we have another couple hours, do we? Y'all want to sit around? We can, we can continue on. Um, we'll save that for next week. So next week, we'll hear of that disciple succeeding, but, but let that bother you this week. And, and question yourself. Ask yourself. Um, you're not a magician, are you? I don't think we have any magicians. But what are you? And, and are you trying as a disciple to just say, well, I'll take a little bit of Jesus and insert it here where it's comfortable? It's not discipleship. What discipleship is, is you say, I'm going where my master leads. I'm going to do what my master has told me to do. And this is what he's told me to do. Don't gain the world and forfeit your soul. But all of these things will be added unto you. That's the good news. Is in the end, even temporarily, as these people are drug out of their house, as they flee Jerusalem, as they leave everything behind, they haven't lost. They've gained. The persecution came, they fled, and they gained Christ in the midst of it because they said, Jesus is better than Jesus is more important than, and I'll take that. So that's, that's the nature of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That, that's the picture that we have, is going, making disciples, teaching obedience. That sounds familiar. You may notice that on the way out the door this morning. You may have seen that before. That's what it means to be a disciple, and that's what Simon missed out on. Now, if I can just... 
throw in, now that we've done, we've, we finished Simon, we put a period there. History says some really bad things about Simon. The, um, uh, I think it was Irenaeus said that Simon was the founder of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the very first Christian heresy. It said that you're saved by hidden knowledge, by this secret knowledge. And they said that Simon is the one who started that. I don't know if that's absolutely correct or not, but Irenaeus was closer to the time period, so I'll take his word for it. Um, he went on to Rome, apparently, and was a great magician in Rome. So it looks like from the history that we have, it doesn't look like Simon ever turned. It looks like he, he picked up some, a little Christianity, sprinkled it on his magic, and then went around telling people. And, and that's tragic. It's sad to see that you can get inoculated. You can get just enough Christianity to not really believe it to just mix it in with everything else. That's, that's, that's really scary. And that's what Simon Magnus is, is warning us, is he's not that Magnus after all. Um, so just had to finish the history lesson on that guy. So next week we get the Ethiopian eunuch and we get this glorious message of a discipleship program that succeeds. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that the Holy Spirit um, has fallen on us, that he has sealed us, Lord, that we can look at our lives and see markers, indications of things that he has done in our lives, that he is working and active. And uh, Lord, we're grateful that we didn't have to sit and wait till Peter came and put his, his hand on us. Um, Lord, I thank you that you do that, but I'm grateful also for the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that if we face persecution if, if we have to um, endure it, Lord, would you give us that same hope, that same vision of Jesus at the right hand of authority that enabled your early church to endure? Would you give us that same vision, that same hope, that same trust? Lord, I, I pray for the Christians in Nigeria who are being executed and maimed in the night by um, uh, others in the, in the area, the, mostly women and children who have been executed uh, Lord, I pray that you would grant the church their success in the midst of that kind of persecution and execution. Lord, would you give them faith and hope? Um, Father, we pray for um, Pastor Brunson in um, Turkey as he's being now turned into a political football between our president and President Erdogan in, um, in Turkey. Lord, we pray that you would maintain his faith intact, that you would give him a greater vision of who you are, and that you would deliver him from that persecution as well liberate him from jail and the charges that he faces. And Lord, for those thousands and millions of others around the world who are suffering for the name of Christ that we don't know, we pray for their deliverance as well. Grant them faith. Grant them patience. Lord, remind them of the, the treasure that waits for them. And Lord, we pray that you would judge those who are persecuting. And by judge, Lord, we mean condemn those who are worthy of condemning declare righteous those who are um, righteous. And, and Lord, we know righteousness is only by faith in Christ. And so would you bring up Saul's from all of those different groups that are persecuting? And Lord, would you multiply your church, continue to multiply your church? You've only been doing it for 2,000 years. Would you continue it now throughout the world? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.